Hello and welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we are going back to Europe for a trek where we will spend five days in the Alps on a trail that is known as much for its beauty as for its solitude. Yes, you can still find some relatively lightly traveled routes in the Alps, and one that is surprisingly close to civilization, and thus pretty easy to reach for international travelers. On this adventure, we will circle the Wilder Kaiser Massif, staying in mountain huts as we ascend and descend more than 5,000 meters on this loop trek. On this episode of Trailsworth Hiking, we travel the Kaiserkrone in the Tyrol Alps of Austria. Welcome to the show, everyone. Remember to reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com with ideas for future episodes. This episode's guest on the show is listener Alex Schumann from Seattle, Washington. Alex hiked the Kaiser Krone in summer 2022, and I'm glad he was able to come on the show and tell us about it. But before we jump into the episode, let me remind you about our sponsor, Outdoor Herbivore, at OutdoorHerbivore.com. Outdoor Herbivore has delicious and healthy backpacking meals. They have quality ingredients, lots of calories, are boiled in a bag so that they can be easily prepared with just some water added to the bag and sealed up for about 10 minutes. These are vegetarian and vegan backpacking meals, but as I always say, you don't need to be a vegetarian or a vegan to really enjoy these meals. Trailsworth Hiking listeners get a discount of 10% off their order using the discount code TWH10P. So we're starting to get close to spring and not that far away from the summer hiking season. So if you're going to do some shoulder season backpacking, why not buy some delicious outdoor herbivore backpacking meals and have all that you need for great dinners on the trail? Outdoor Herbivore ships worldwide. You can also order bulk items from Outdoor Herbivore. So if you want to put together your own meals and just order, for example, dried bean flakes or dried rice or other ingredients where you can make the meals yourself, you can do that as well. So why not give Outdoor Herbivore a try and support them since they are supporting the show? Outdoor Herbivore at OutdoorHerbivore.com. Again, the discount code is TWH10P, Trails Worth Hiking 10%. Thanks again to Outdoor Herbivore for sponsoring the show. All right, let's talk about Austria. I have never been to Austria, so I enjoyed learning about it and putting together this episode. So that's one reason I wanted to do this episode. I really like to learn about a place I haven't been to. But what was also really appealing to me about doing this episode is that it covers a less traveled part of the Alps. As you know from episode 22, the episode on the Tour de Mont Blanc, which was a fantastic trip that I hiked with my family and with another family. But it was also hard on that trail to get away from other travelers, which is fine if you expect that going in. And I think with that hike, we all knew going in that we weren't going to have much solitude. The Kaiser Krone is quite different. So I hope after hearing this episode, you will want to go hike the Kaiser Krone, but don't tell anyone else about it, okay? All right, so we are back in the Alps, and as I said, I talked about the Alps previously and pretty extensively on episode 22 on the Tour de Mont Blanc, so I won't go into that, but um, just to, you know, the, the most simple way to describe the Alps is they are a huge mountain range arcing across a good chunk of Europe which includes a number of countries. And Austria is one of those countries where this hike is. In my mind, Austria seems like Germany's smaller, mountainous, but still German-speaking neighbor. But 
it wasn't always like that. From 1867 until the end of World War I, Austria was one half of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was a dual monarchy between Austria and Hungary. At the time, this was the second largest country in Europe, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, after Russia. So really, if you think of Russia as sort of connecting Europe and Asia in some way, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was really the biggest player in Europe at the time. And it was a major power. But after defeats in World War I and then World War II, Austria was divided into spheres of influence like Germany was. And the modern Austrian state that we know today gained independence in 1955. This hike is in the Tyrol portion of Austria. And this is in the eastern part of the Alps. If you look at a map, Austria has a main part, a sort of body, if you will, and then it has a thinner arm-like part sticking out to the west. This arm is the Tyrol portion of the Alps. Its capital is Innsbruck, Austria, and it's sort of jammed in between Germany, close to Munich to the north, and then Liechtenstein and Switzerland to the west, and then below it is South Tyrol, which is part of Italy. In classic times, Tyrol was part of the Roman Empire. It later became part of the Duchy of Bavaria in the early Middle Ages. Later again, it became part of the Holy Roman Empire, which was the empire that descended from Charlemagne. It was controlled by the Counts of Tyrol from 1140 to 1253. Later, it was under Habsburg control. Then even later, after Napoleon came through, it was part of the Kingdom of Bavaria. Long story short, it has changed hands a lot of times over the last few thousand years. People have lived in the region since the end of the last Ice Age, 12,000 years ago, starting with Stone Age hunters, followed by Bronze and Iron Age herders, all the way up to the Roman conquest in 15 BC. So it's an area that has been sort of a crossroads for a lot of different civilizations and empires. The region can be described as Bavaria, even though it's not part of German Bavaria. In fact, you'll hear Alex in our discussion describe that he encountered a person who spoke Bavarian and didn't even speak standard German. So I find that interesting that a significant number of people in this area speak a language separate from German, which is Bavarian. Bavarian is spoken by 12 million people, in fact. A lot of them are in the German region of Bavaria, but also most of Austria, there are people who speak Bavarian. In Tyrol, in fact, many people claim it as their primary spoken language. There has been some disagreement about whether Bavarian is a dialect of German or a separate language, but that said, it is more different from German than Danish is from Norwegian, which are considered separate languages. UNESCO and other international organizations consider it a separate language. There's also multiple regional dialects within Bavarian. In rural areas in Austria, Bavarian may be the primary spoken language, with standard German reserved as the written language and the language of mass media. Because we love to tell cultural stories on this show, I'll mention one interesting cultural factoid that I found. Let's talk for a minute about the cult of St. Wilgefortis. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but let's go with Wilgefortis. So Wilgefortis was a teenage noblewoman whose father had promised her hand in marriage to a non-Christian king. She didn't want the marriage and really only wanted a connection of that magnitude with God. So she prayed that she would be made repulsive so she wouldn't have to get married. And her prayers were answered, and she grew a beard. And this ended her engagement to the non-Christian king. But her father was so upset that he had her crucified. In Bavaria, she is known as Kumernis. Again, forgive my pronunciation. Which, as I understand it, means grief or sadness. St. Wilgefortis has never been officially canonized. But despite that, she has been viewed for centuries as the saint of women abused by their husbands. There was a cult around her that started in the 14th century. 
It was suppressed by the 16th century in much of Europe, but it lingered on all the way into the 20th century, particularly in German Bavaria and Austria. There is popular art from even the 20th century depicting her. She is typically depicted as a bearded woman and in many cases being crucified. Even more particularly than being a popular figure in Austria, St. Wilgefortis has been popular in the Austrian Tyrol region. But what's interesting is if you look at our current social and political situation in the Western world, as you might imagine, today, a bearded, crucified woman has taken on new meaning. And she is seen by some as the saint for transgender people or gender-fluid people. I'm not clear on why her cult was so strong in Bavaria and Austria, but there you have it. A cultural tidbit too interesting to pass up. Let's switch back to the geography of this hike. The hike takes place in the Kaiser Mountains. The Kaiser Mountains include the Zammer Kaiser and the Wilder Kaiser. These are the Northern Limestone Alps. The Wilder Kaiser section is made up of bare limestone rock. The Kaiser Mountains are about 20 kilometers or about 12 miles from east to west, and 14 kilometers or almost nine miles north-south. So not a huge mountain range, pretty approachable size. They're also not that high in elevation, even though they look very alpine. The highest peak is Elmauer Halt at 2,344 meters. So let's say a little over 7,000 feet. There are 40 summits in the Kaiser Range, and many of them are well known for climbing. The area was turned into a nature reserve that was established in 1963. Alex talks in our conversation about a chairlift that takes you to the top of an area where he began his hike. And because it was made a nature reserve, that is the only man-made lift in the area. The area is rich in flora and fauna. I'll just name a few things. For trees, you have beech and fir and spruce. There is a poisonous snake, which I thought was interesting, the common European adder that lives in the area. There are lots of small mammals like vole and hare. There's also chamois, which is sort of a wild mountain goat. There's lots of songbirds and wildflowers, as you might imagine, and also raptors like hawk and golden eagle and different types of owls. The Kaiser Krone name means the king's crown, and it refers to the way the mountain range looks, but this hike itself is a loop hike that goes in a circle around the range. So the route also makes me think of a crown. So with that background, let's jump into my conversation with Alex Schumann about the Kaiser Krone. Alex Schumann, welcome to the show. Alex is a listener from Seattle. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Excited to be here. So Alex... How did you get into backpacking and trekking to begin with? That's a good question. I grew up in Houston, uh, Texas, so there's not a ton of trekking uh, that you do there uh, that isn't either very hot or very buggy and, you know, really not a hiking mecca by any means. But <laughs> yeah, uh, when we were in high school, we, uh, my family actually moved to Canada where I started to get a lot more into the mountains uh, and into, you know, both in the winter and the summer but was very into kind of soccer and sports and things like that and had never really tried backpacking. And it wasn't actually till grad school, I moved out to Seattle that I really wanted to, you know, give it a try. Uh, so summer in between my grad school years, actually, uh, just like committed to fully diving in. I think I went on nine or 10 backpacking trips that summer and just kind of fell for it uh, in terms of what it enables you to see when you can see it and how you can kind of experience it beyond just a day hike. Just kind of caught the bug and have kind of been pursuing that as my primary, you know, form of recreation kind of ever since. So that's kind of how I got into it. I feel like I'm playing catch up a little later in life than a lot of people who kind of grow up backpacking, but that's kind of how I got into it. <laughs> you might be surprised to hear that I did not grow up backpacking. Oh, really? There you go. Yeah. I grew up doing mostly car camping Okay. with my family. 
So backpacking came to me later too, and I have definitely caught up. And it just takes, you know, <laughs> you yeah. keep doing it over and over, you'll get there. <laughs> exactly. So one of the things that caught my attention with you is that we're going to be talking about an international hut-to-hut trek. And you do a lot of backpacking also. And I think you may have heard, I don't know if you've listened to episodes where I've talked about that issue, but there are a lot of people who do one or the other. Mm-hmm. And I think it's great when there are people like you and like me who who find joy in doing either one of those activities. So we're going to be talking about an international hut-to-hut trek. What, how did you get into doing that? Is that something more, even more recent? Yeah, I think similar to kind of the concept of playing catch-up. When we were planning our honeymoon in 2019, that was when I planned our first hut-to-hut trek, which was the Altavia one. So, you know, one you've covered. And I think with that, we were looking at ways we could kind of get outside and get that backpacking experience, but do it in kind of other parts of the world. And then when you realize that in Europe, especially, there isn't a ton of dispersed camping that is even allowed. uh, The primary method is really staying in the huts and, you know, getting that experience. Uh, So we decided to kind of give that a whirl when we did that trip. So wanted to essentially spend a lot of time outside a new location was really kind of how we got into it. But then, you know, you realize you get to meet a lot more people that way because you're sharing meals at the same table and interfacing with all the other hikers and guests and things, people who are on, you know, completely different itineraries. So that part I think is really fun and really exciting. And then you can't really beat the fact that you could wind up with a three course meal at the end of a long day of uh, hiking or trekking uh, and in many cases a very good three course meal and, you know, cold beer and things like that. So uh, I think it's a really nice way to do it. And I think the you know, you don't quite get the same level of dependence, you know, on yourself and you may not get the solitude, but you still get to be in really beautiful locations at, you know, sunset and sunrise and, you know, ultimately meet a lot of cool people, which I think is, you know, worth that trade-off. So today we're going to be talking about the Kaiser Krone that you and your wife hiked in Austria this past summer. And that is not a trail that I had heard of before you brought it to my attention. And there are lots of trails in the Alps, of course. Yep. So how did you go from Alta Via in 2019 and then coming out of COVID 2022 decide that the Kaiser Krone was a trail to do? Yeah, it is, I guess, a little random uh, in a way, uh, but we were planning to go to Europe this summer to actually meet up with some friends who were kind of having a reunion in London. Uh, and we didn't want to just fly to Europe for a weekend. Uh, we wanted to you know, make it a bigger trip. Not quite to the point in life where I can afford to fly to Europe for just a weekend, unfortunately. So we were looking at different things we could do. We wanted to be, we knew we wanted to do something outside, uh, but it was a little bit earlier in the season. Early June was when we were going to be in, you know, in Europe. And so we didn't quite have a good feel for what snowpack and things like that were looking for or going to look like. So we were looking at different trekking options, different hiking options, uh, but ultimately we're shooting lower elevation was kind of one of the things I was looking at. Uh, so we were actually looking at this and then a um, beach trek in Portugal were kind of the two I was really seriously looking at just because early season weather was going to be a bit of a consideration. But the more research I did on the Kaiser Krone, I got really excited that it was very close to Munich, which made it super accessible for you know kind of a multi-purpose trip. And then the altitude was such that we were not going to run into any problems, you know, early in June. And then the level of detail you're able to find on even the Wilderkaiser Tourism Board's website on all the different things you can do and where you can stay and all the different routes just got me really excited for what this area looked like and, you know, the look and feel. And so that's kind of how we ultimately landed on it. But it was, you know, a combination of focused on what we could do early season, as well as, you know, kind of accessibility um, and ultimately spending, you know, as much time doing the backpacking and doing the hiking versus, you know, a lot of places that are, you know, maybe take several days just to get to where you're going before you can start hiking. So those were kind of the big considerations in the research. So you mentioned the the Wilder Kaiser website, which I also looked at before we talked tonight. And that did have a lot of great information. Did you also look at any other resources that were important for planning? The other question I had about that is in a hut-to-hut hike, often there have to be reservations. And I don't mm-hmm. know if that was something you had to deal with also and how you handled that. Yes. So made a lot of use of that website, uh, which is, I think, one of the best tourism board websites I've ever seen in terms of the detail for the actual activities. They have tons of routes on there for 
treks and even climbs that you can do with very specific directions. So that was super helpful. And then you actually had one of your guests uh, runs the Moon Honey blog. Yeah, yeah. And they actually have a very good blog post about it as well that also got us super excited. So those are the primary resources for plotting it out as well as the compass map of the area kind of helped us put it all together. Okay. And then on reservations, we did make our reservations for specific days. That I think is definitely necessary for the, there's two mountain huts as part of the trek. And then there's two places where you actually stay in what are really more Alpine towns uh, where you have a couple different options for the huts. I think it's definitely necessary to have a reservation. Uh, And then for the different towns, there's a couple of different options, but we reserved all four uh, ahead of time. And was that pretty easy to do in the sense that they weren't, you didn't have to go to alternatives that were booked or anything like that? No, we're able to select, you know, first choices and things like that. And then a little goofy, I think I had to transfer euros to a couple Austrian bank accounts is the way (laughs) I secured my deposit for several of them, which I, you know, hadn't had to do ever before. So that was the only, you know, potentially new thing people may have to do if they're interested in that, but, you know, super easy to figure out. I think most major banks can help you do that. Yeah, no problems. So you mentioned that you guys did this in June. And was it just you and your wife? It was just us, yes. Okay. So you mentioned you did this in June, and that's because you said in part because the snow levels would already be low or gone by this time of year in the lower altitude hike. When do you think is really the season for this hike for people to consider? I think you could even go a little bit earlier. We had no problems at all. So I think you could potentially even start this in you know, late May. And then I believe the season runs all the way until October, definitely into September. I think most, you know, sites will recommend shooting for late August, September, I think for best Alps weather. I think the one thing to know, especially in June, uh, in the Alps, I didn't, this is something I didn't really realize until we were getting closer to the trip and I was looking at the weather and I was like, oh my goodness, it's been raining every day for weeks. (laughs) Uh, and then when you actually get there, it does rain every day, but it's not raining all day every day. So it is a little wet uh, in June in the Alps. We had rain, pretty good rain the very first day, and then most of our weather was absolutely beautiful. But the forecast leading up to it was not great. So I, I think generally people would recommend, you know, July and onward. But we, you know, we had great weather in June. Uh, but you will, I think, definitely have some days of precipitation if you're going a little bit earlier. So I'm surprised to hear that someone who now lives in Seattle is concerned about the rain. <laughs> well, you know, you want, you know, when you're in the mountains, you want to be able to see the mountains. That's so true. that was more of the concern than necessarily the bad weather. But yeah, when you're getting closer to a big trip and you're really focused on it, you, uh, you start to let that type of stuff bother you. Yeah, I hear you. So how long of a trip is this as far as distance and then the amount of days to do the hike? So on that website, there's a lot of different ways you can do it. The way we did it is the very traditional Kaiser Krone route, which is really a circumnavigation of the of the range. Uh, so that's 65 kilometers and was perfect in five days. You know, five days of hiking. The last day is not too strenuous, but you know, you're definitely. I would definitely call it a hiking day. It's by no by no means a day where you're just transferring back to wherever you came from. And so you know, 65 kilometers, five days. It's you know, a solid, a couple of very solid days in there, but very doable in five days, I would say. We were generally finishing each day, you know, right around four, four thirty. So solid full days, but you know, definitely doable with relatively extended breaks for, for lunch and things like that. How's the up and down? So there's actually there's multiple ways you, where you can start in terms of the town you start mm-hmm. in. We started in the town of Kufstein, which has got the easiest train routes to and from Munich, So, which, which is why we selected that. And because of that, where you start that day and kind of where you get to, the steepest uphill of the entire trek is actually on that day, getting up to the Stripsenjok, which is one of the mountain huts. Uh, if you do it the more traditional way, you start further away than Kufstein when you're going there. And so that becomes a very long day that I believe would be very challenging. So I would, in addition to the convenience of Kufstein, that's another great reason to do it that way is you're doing that relatively steep uphill on a shorter day than, you know, rather than doing it on a, at the very end of a much longer day. So you're kind of breaking that up into two, like if somebody else might do that entire uphill in one day, you're kind of breaking it up. Yes, exactly. Okay. And then total 
feel, I'd say there's definitely two days that feel pretty challenging. That first day is a little challenging. And then day three, once you get to strips in, then you kind of retreat back to the valley floor on day two. And then on day three, you climb up on a really cool exposed ridge and then come back. And then that day is also pretty challenging, but also one that's, you know, got pretty good access to spots to break for lunch and things like that. And I think is that was probably my favorite day. So it's by no means hate hiking, but a challenging day for sure. So what was the situation for lunches? You mentioned stopping for lunch. Did you buy them at the huts and take them with you each day? We didn't buy them in the mornings and take them with us. We would get them uh, at different huts along the way. So okay. there's not just the huts you stop at, but also a fair amount of huts, you know, interspersed throughout the mountains mm-hmm. that make great spots for lunch. Uh, and so I think just about every day there's a great spot uh, for stopping. In a couple of spots, the exactly what constitutes a hut is different. In some places, it's you know a full service restaurant that also has rooms and things like that. In some places, it was just a single person, you know, selling relatively cold beers and sodas out of their, uh, you know, basement cellar that's been the refrigerator for, you know, probably hundreds of years. Uh, so very different in terms of the amenities at some of these huts. Yeah. But, you know, without a doubt, lots of great places to stop, get real food along the way. What did you carry as far as gear? Uh, we carried our normal backpacking packs, which I think... If I were to do a hut-to-hut trek again, I would try to carry a lighter pack. Basically, just using the same pack, I'd carry, you know, a West Coast bear canister and, you know, a big tent and all that in. Don't have that kind of medium-sized pack, but that is something I would definitely recommend because you can just go lighter. So you're th- you're saying like a uh, intermediate-sized pack between a regular day pack and a full backpacking pack? Yes. I think there are a lot of those that are sort of in like the 38-liter range that are bigger than a day pack, but not as big as a backpacking pack. Exactly. I'd recommend trying to work to that as your, you know, ideal hut to hut pack, because I think you can pack that a lot lighter. And then, you know, you really are only needing your change of clothes and things you need during the day. And then you need a towel and a sleeping bag liner, not a full sleeping bag. Uh, So it's really more day pack gear plus, plus whatever clothes you need to feel fresh, you know, for five days of hiking with no real access to laundry. So if that's five outfits, that's five outfits. If that's slightly less than that, that's, you know, uh, I think up to everybody. But I think when you have a bigger pack, you kind of find ways to fill it. I was definitely jealous of a few of the folks we saw that were going a little bit lighter. And, you know, I don't think it's super necessary to have too many changes of clothes or things like that because you just have so much access to what you'll need at all the different places you're staying. Yeah, some people might disagree with me, but I think really having one set of good hut clothes and one set of good hiking clothes and maybe a couple of spare or something might be enough, right? Right. Yeah. No, and that's, yeah, we, we met a foursome from Cologne that were doing a very similar route to us, and we ended up kind of hiking with them for a few days. And they were wearing the same hiking gear every day and had much lighter packs and were only carrying, uh, you know, ponchos for weather and things like that. So we're doing it much much more intelligently than we were. And that just makes the experience, you know, you have more time for relaxing and hanging out if you're kind of you know, going faster and not quite as tired. So Yeah, sure. You said you were carrying a pack that could carry a, a bear can, but you're not carrying a bear can. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> that would have been misery. <laughs> All right. So lunches, it sounds like pretty easy to deal with, food pretty regularly. So I would assume water then not an issue either. You can fill up at these local establishments along the way. That's right. Yes. Most of these huts will have access to water. And then that is the one big benefit of a bigger pack. I carry a three liter Camelback when I backpack. I just like to not necessarily have to worry about when I'm going to filter water again. So that's just a kind of a preference thing. If you don't want to carry nearly as much water, generally a lot of the huts will actually have a fresh clean water spring that they're, you know, running for often their animals, but it is, you know, potable. It is clean. (laughs) It's drinking water for people as well. So you just kind of fill that at the top at several of those types of spots. And then the full, you know, service huts are going to have water, you know, running water that you can fill up with. What did you do for navigation? It seemed like from what I saw online that it was pretty simple to follow the trail. Yeah, there's little stickers on all the signs for the Kaiser Krone route. And then we have the Kaiser Mountains map. I'm a big map person, love, love a physical map. So I did have that there are a few spots, I think, where we were, you know, maybe planning to do something slightly different or, you know, wanted to 
see something from a specific spot. And so maybe went a specific way, but beyond that, you know, pretty easy. Didn't really have to get it out once. I think there was one time total where there was a junction and it wasn't signed. And we just had to kind of go with our intuition and it was fortunately correct. Kind of near the end of a day as we were kind of entering a town. And I suspect it was probably the type of thing where you could have gone either way and, you know, ended up where you needed to be. But yeah, very, very well signed. And the map you used is put out by the company Compass with a K? Yes, Compass with a K. Okay. And you mentioned that this is not too far from Munich. So what was the what was the process in getting to the trailhead? So we left from Munich in the morning the day we started. And that was, I think, another kind of big draw to how accessible the hike is. You know, we could leave from a big city and not need to spend the night, you know, somewhere kind of intermediate before we started the hike. So we left Munich at probably 7, 7.30 in the morning. Uh, and then it's about a 90-minute train ride to Kufstein, which is actually a very cute little town, definitely worth checking out. There's a big fortress above the Inn River, which kind of runs through the town. And then that's also kind of the border between Austria and Germany. So kind of cool. And then the town itself has got a very historic center that's kind of worth walking through. And that's how you get to the hike. You walk through the town and then there's actually a chairlift in the town that will take you up to, you know, not obviously all of the climbing you're doing that day, but it will take you up through a lot of what would just be heavily forested uphill to kind of get up into the beginning of the hike. And that's kind of where we started from. So another, another draw to keep sign uh, is the, a good chunk of the uphill on that first day is knocked out by, it's actually a single person trailer. So it's just designed for hikers. It's not designed for skiing or anything like that. Uh, and it's designed for folks to you know be able to get up into the mountains quickly and then to do all kinds of hiking from the top of uh, where it drops you off. You know, you're hiking in Europe when there's a, <laughs> there's a chairlift. <laughs> yeah. And you just, you know, sit there and ride by yourself. It's pretty funny. You mentioned that you'd be bringing changes of clothes and all of that. So I assume there's no really luggage transfer option like there are on some of the European hikes. There's no roads where you could hire somebody in a van to drop your luggage ahead of you each night if you wanted to. It wouldn't shock me if there was some entrepreneurial person you know, willing <laughs> to do it somewhere, yeah. you know, on a blog, but definitely not super common. Okay. Um, and we didn't, we didn't really see any of that, but I'm not totally sure. I don't believe, I don't really believe so. I don't think it's as well trafficked as a lot of the more famous ones where there's kind of a burgeoning support industry around, around the big trek, like Mont Blanc or things like that. That makes sense. And I, when I looked up the trail, I think it said there, that wasn't an option and maybe, maybe there aren't real roads to a couple of the huts and that's why there's not a business around that. But also you're right. It, it takes a certain amount of people to be doing the trail for it to be uh, attractive enough to somebody to start a business doing that. Yeah, definitely. So describe this area for people who haven't been to this area. This is the, as I understand it, the Tyrol Alps or that part of the Alps. Yeah. What does this area look like? How does it you know, differ from, for example, what you saw in the Alta Via or other parts of the Alps for people who haven't been to this part of Austria? Yeah, we've heard it called the Tyrolean Alps, Eastern Alps, and then Limestone Alps are, I think, kind of the three big things you hear. So in terms of exactly where you are, you're, you're directly between Salzburg and Innsbruck and in kind of Austria. So you're in kind of the, the arm of Austria as it stretches underneath Germany. The actual Kaiser Krone, the name is because the Kaiser Mountains kind of stick up from the land and they're almost arrayed like the Kaiser's crown, which is what Kaiser Krone means. So you can imagine very prominent, big limestone peaks as, you know, kind of all in an array, almost looking as if they're perfectly arranged where... You know, there's a few at a certain height on this side, and it's very symmetrical. So that's kind of the central backdrop. And then the underlying area, there's, you know, several towns kind of around that mountain range. Several of them are actually big winter ski destinations. I thought the part that was, I think, a little bit different from the Altavia one, there's a lot more kind of alpine meadow and, you know, alpine farmland around the mountains that was, you know, really interesting to walk through. A lot of Farms that had clearly been there for a very long time, still active farms, things like that. Little teeny uh, farming communities where you had a you know, teeny chapel, you know, next to several very old farmhouses. So a very cool, seemingly very you know uniquely Austrian feel. And then a lot of the hiking was on pretty cool exposed ridge lines, both in and out of forest. Uh, and so I think those are kind of the other cool features that kind of make up the the setting. 
And you mentioned that this wasn't terribly crowded compared to a lot of international sort of trekking trails. Who did you meet along the trail? What kind of people were out there? If you're interested in hut-to-hut trekking, but you don't necessarily want the feel that everyone is doing the same you know, trip as you, this is definitely one I'd recommend for that very reason. So a few of the days we did this were weekdays because we did it kind of Friday to Monday. And then we you know, also obviously were hiking on the weekend. And so on the weekend, a lot of folks are day tripping up into the mountains. Uh, it's a pretty big climbing destination. There's a lot of, I think, climbing routes uh, on the actual peaks themselves. Uh, and so a lot of climbers, a lot of folks with, you know, helmets and harnesses and things like that, that you'd run into. But on some days we would go long stretches without seeing anyone at all, which is, I think, pretty rare for Alps hiking and kind of fun. And then the other interesting thing was we did not hear anyone speaking English, you know, whatsoever. And so almost everybody is local, either Bavarian or Austrian. Primarily, I'd say pretty much from the surrounding area. The, the foursome we spent the most time with, they were actually from Cologne, which is not necessarily right around the corner, but primarily a, you know, a very German, very Austrian feel to everyone kind of doing the hike, which was cool. So you mentioned that there's a lot of climbers in the area and with limestone mountains, you can imagine why. Were there any technical or not technical, but were there any parts of the trail where there were rungs or ladders or posts that were fixed where it was would have been otherwise a little bit sketchy, but they have, you know, provided that kind of thing. Cause some of these European trails go through some terrain where there've been these routes for a long time where they might have ladders and other things posted there. Yes. So generally the traditional route is, I think the European definition of what's easy, intermediate and advanced, I think is kind of already a little advanced. And so I think technically every, all of this is, you know, easy, just footstep hiking, there are definitely a few sections where you're walking down rungs that are bolted in, but you're not necessarily overly exposed. And on the first day and the third day, there are very interesting, very fun periods where you're walking along, you know, relatively narrow pathway, weaving your way through a valley. On the first day, there's several uh, creek crossings that are fun, not challenging by any means. A couple sections where it's, you know, almost like a staircase down a ridge because that's how you're kind of getting down into a valley. And then on the third day, there is one section where you're climbing rungs that are actually bolted into a waterfall. Wow. But it's very brief and there is by no means need for, there's by no means need for a harness. And then there's a bit of a portion where you, you're not scrambling by any means, but it is very steep and you are kind of coming up a goalie on the third day. That is a little bit challenging, but Generally, the traditional route is kind of graded as easy. And then there are quite a few options if you wanted to add on, you know, a more challenging day excursion from one of the huts. There's tons of options for doing that uh, higher up, especially. Many of them wouldn't require technical skill. They're more via ferrata type style, where as long as you're bolted in, it is generally walking, just very exposed walking. And I think if I did it again, I'd try to add on something like that where you don't have to do it as part of the backpack, but you could do it as part of the, uh, you know, what you do in the evening one day or afternoon, you know. Which direction did you do the hike? Is that the typical direction? We went clockwise. Yeah, clockwise. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Clockwise. So starting in Kufstein and kind of the 10 o'clock and then worked our way back around. Is that the standard way to do it? The super traditional way you actually start at about six o'clock and then go clockwise. Okay. But same direction. Same direction. Yes. Okay. So why don't we go through generally how the hike went for you? We'll go just a little bit through each day and you can tell me about some of the things that were most interesting about each day or particularly challenging and maybe a little bit about the huts that you stayed at or the villages you stayed in along the way uh, as well. Does that make sense? Yeah. It sounds great. Okay. So day one, I'm going to let you say the names because I will butcher them badly. I mean, I will butcher them as well, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> Both my grandfathers spoke German, but I, I do not, unfortunately. <laughs> so day one, again, we kind of started in Kufstein and got up to the top of the chairlift. So we'll kind of walk you through that. Okay. Um, and when you get up there, we learned on the last day, you... When you do it through Kufstein, you get to start and stop in that same spot, and then you actually just take the chairlift down to finish. You have a great view of the in-river valley and the mountain range behind Kufstein. 
on a pretty day. We had a you know pretty wet weather that day, so we didn't really know what we were you know entering into when we got to the top on day one. And at the beginning, you're kind of walking on farm access roads because where you're headed is actually a bit of a farming community uh, on day one. Uh, and so the first bit is just a little bit of a climb from there over to the west, and then you hit the Kindelhuta, which was our kind of first stop that day. And that one is just set in this really cool valley right underneath one of the rock faces. It had this teeny little chapel that was like the size of this office that I'm in uh, with a white picket fence around it, a couple other kind of outlying buildings, things like that. Um, And because it was super rainy and Friday when we got up there, we were the only people at that hut kind of stopped there for a breakfast. Uh, It was not very far to get up there, but because we had started with the train and then walked through Koopstein and then done the chairlift, you know, by then we were kind of ready for a bite to eat. So that was a really cool spot. Uh, And then on the final day, you get to actually come back through there. So we had lunch again there um, and realized how beautiful the setting truly was when you could see it in the sun. But that was a really cool spot. And then from there, you kind of head straight east and you traverse a couple more farms. And then you get onto this portion of the trail where that the trail actually is named like the Batcher Steeg, I believe is what it's called. Uh, and then that portion was what I was kind of talking about earlier when you asked the question about how technical it is. Mm-hmm. Most of that route was very narrow, very much kind of tucked onto relatively steep you know, side of the mountain, you're kind of working your way down into a valley uh, where you have several creek crossings, things like that. And most of the descent is either full-on staircase or the prongs that are kind of bolted in. So kind of fun, a little challenging in in the weather for sure on that day, but definitely doable. And the whole way you're kind of working your way back down to uh, the valley that's right underneath Strips and Yawk or strips in yaw, you don't pronounce the yak. Yaw is ridge, and that's basically like the Kaiser Krone is perpendicular east-west, and then that ridge actually juts out kind of north-south. And so you're working your way to kind of a, a notch between them uh, is where you're headed on that kind of lower uh, valley portion. Uh, and then when we got there, the weather kind of broke, and we had this beautiful kind of sunny afternoon. And then there's two huts in that valley, both of which you could stay at. Hans Burger House is one of them, which just sounded like the most perfect name for an Austrian hut. Uh, and that's where we stopped for lunch. They had a little goat farm. They were right on a little creek. Uh, and you could actually see our destination from there. The Stripson House had a great view of the peaks in the background. We had, I think, cake and beer there. So you can't go wrong with that combination. <laughs> And then from there, it's probably a little less than a two-hour climb, you know, like another 90 minutes. But that's the challenging portion that's, you know, mostly just straight uphill. And so you hit one more hut kind of in the forest. And then as you make your way up, you'll get above the tree line a little bit. There's actually a uh, one of the few spots we saw along the way. There's a relatively makeshift lean-to, almost like one you'd see on the Appalachian Trail. Uh, that you could stop at if you hit bad weather right before you got to the hut that actually has beds. Uh, and then right on the, you know, kind of almost like dragon's tail of that pass is where the Stripson house is. And that's where we stayed the first night. Uh, and that's a really cool setting because it's a cool ridge and then the ridge actually kind of rises behind it. And so for the evening, you can go up and climb the ridge behind it. And then you have an incredible view of where you're sleeping, the mountain range behind you. And then you get, you know, very classic, uh, you know, pink Alpen glow from that spot. That was a, definitely a highlight was, you know, seeing all that uh, that evening. Uh, and then all, almost all the peaks in this area uh, have crosses on them because of how Catholic Austria is. So there's mm-hmm. a couple of those back there uh, that are cool to see. And that hut is, you know, a very traditional mountain hut. So... Dormitory style? Dormitory style. They do have rooms, uh, private rooms. That's one of the requests from uh, my backpacking partner is <laughs> private rooms, but kind of open seating for dinner. And they do have a set or not a set menu. They do a um, um, new order off a menu, which is, uh, I think, kind of a luxury for a lot of huts. So that, that was great. And then uh, they have a bit of a terrace that kind of looks out over 
the center of the range. That's you know really great for sitting out there in the evening. So a really a really cool spot. And entering that first valley with the church and the little farmhouses, and then getting up there for the evening were both like incredible experiences. Where you're like, this is why I'm doing this. This is why I selected this type of trail. Yeah. Once you do something like that, you feel like I have arrived. I'm here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so what about day two? So day two, that kind of Dragon's Tail Ridge that I was describing runs kind of straight out from the Kaiser Mountains, and then it hooks to the east and slowly descends as it hooks to the east. So you start that day, wake up there in the morning, strips and did a great full breakfast, so great, great spot for getting the day going. And then you climb the strips and cough, which is the actual peak behind the hut on the ridge. So the beginning of day two is just a straight ascent up that I mean, it is a peak itself. Uh, and so there's a like little gazebo at the top that has charts of like all the different prominent peaks in the region, has a book of, you know, everyone who's been up there, the founders who built the gazebo in like the 1920s, things like that. So a cool spot for taking everything in. And you can see some of the biggest mountains in Germany are actually kind of straight west of there. So that's a, a cool spot for seeing things kind of beyond the Kaiser range. Uh, so a cool way to start the day, the getting up there probably takes the first hour. It's actually pretty quick. It's not substantial distance. It's just a pretty good climb uh, to get up there. And then once you're up there, you're basically traversing that ridge uh, all the way across. Uh, and so you have tremendous views the whole time of the mountains directly in front of you, which are another component of the Kaiser Range. And then the entire time, if you look, you know, if you choose to look behind you, uh, the views of the Kaiser Crone range just, you know, continue to be uh, incredible. And so you wrap around that ridge. That ridge is not super exposed, so it's relatively calm walking. There were a couple herds of sheep just kind of grazing along the ridge, which was cool to see. And then eventually you make your way to a bit more, uh, a, a couple farms uh, along that uh, ridge not, uh, that are actively operational, so not serving as huts. And then you make your way to a bit of a birch forest and then back down to the valley floor. Uh, and then from there, you just walk along a river to the town of Grinnow. And that's where we had lunch. Uh, and that was town, like a real road running through it, farming community, very cool approach, kind of walking through some farm fields. Uh, and then there were a couple uh, real inns at the center of town. That's where we had uh, had lunch. So that was there. And then from there to where we ended up staying, which was in Gasteig, uh, is I, probably another hour just walking south and you walk through more of a forest to get to Gasteig. And then that's set back from the mountains. You have a view looking to the west of the whole range, which is really cool. Uh, and we stayed at, it was almost like a farm resort. It was really cool. It was, it felt like everybody that was there was like a young Austrian family taking their children there because they had horse rides and uh, you could feed the chickens and the goats and things like that. They had an amazing view of the mountains. It just felt like a very happy, fun place. So that was, you know, very different than a mountain hut, but a very fun place to stay. That's cool when you get a very different experience from day to day. Yeah. So that was cool. And the rooms there were really, really nice and they had a really good restaurant. So would definitely recommend staying there. Hotel Group Kramerhof was the name of the kind of farm resort. Very cool spot. Okay. All right. And then you're almost halfway there and day three. Yep. And so day three is somewhat similar to day one in terms of being a big ascent day. Uh, and day three is probably my favorite full day in terms of the hiking you do. Uh, and this was also Sunday of our day of hiking and probably the best weather we had, which may somewhat influence that. But throughout this day, there were probably 100, 200 people paragliding above the peaks that day. And so that just oh, made wow. for like the coolest you know, view of a hundred, you know, little specks above a very cool mountain. But the beginning of this day is climbing back out of Gasteig. Uh, and so you very quickly, you, the, the trail really runs straight to Hotel Kramerhof and then kind of continues basically from their property. So the other benefit of staying there is you do, you add no distance by staying there whatsoever, but very quickly you kind of get to rolling farm fields that ascend, you know, more quickly than I think you'd realize, but really cool spots where you're seeing you know, some very old farmhouses and you have more peekaboo views of the peaks that you're headed towards. 
and then there's one steep switchback section where when you reach the top of that, you realize you're on a very narrow ridge at kind of the southeastern tip of kind of the Kaiser Krone range. And you have to make your way along this very narrow ridge uh, for a pretty good distance before you're back to just full walking. And so this part was nothing overly exposed by any means, but you had great views to the south, which was the first time we had views to the south, where you could see uh, a lot of the ski villages that are south of that area. And then uh, there's a fair amount of kind of via ferrata type routes to get up to that ridge from the other side. The way we came up was just hiking, uh, but very cool to see. Uh, and then you're weaving your way up and around that ridge, and then you ultimately get to uh, another very cool valley that had uh, a dairy farm in it. And then beyond that was the first hut we stopped at for that day that I described a little bit earlier, which was truly just an old Austrian man uh, who was serving beverages out of his basement because his basement was a, a natural refrigerator. So we met a couple from Bavaria who spoke English while we were there. And we were explaining that we had tried to learn German really, you know, really hard. And we were really bummed that we couldn't get a word out of him. And we weren't sure he understood a word we said. And she said, well, he doesn't speak German anyway. He's only speaking Bavarian. <laughs> so we, That's incredible. We felt a little that bit better incredible. about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. But that was one of the cooler experiences because it was, uh, and then she explained to us that, you know, she'd been talking to him and he only comes up if the, if the temperature is between, uh, you know, these thresholds and there's no rain in the forecast. And so the only reason he's there is because it was a gorgeous day and he just comes up to, you know, sell very cheap beers to people. So kind of kind of cool <laughs> yeah and where'd you end up that evening uh so from there that this day was one of definitely the probably the longest day we had because of the way we did it so that was really probably only halfway point of this day and we actually stopped for a second lunch because he didn't serve food so we, we stopped for a beer <laughs> with this guy uh, and then continued on and then from there you wrap up through kind of another farm field and then you uh, actually descend through a pretty cool bowl and then you'd get down to more of a real hut uh, that people are accessing from kind of the south central part of the mountain range uh, and so we stopped there for lunch uh, but when you get there you actually have to descend quite a ways and then you basically have to reascend right after that so that's where we decided a full meal is probably necessary before we finish the section and then the next section was very fun it was your walking through like a field of boulders. So there were a lot of folks bouldering around this area. Um, so very unique from a lot of the rest of the things we were doing. So a very rocky kind of valley that you ultimately walk through at first. And then by the time you reach the you know far side of the valley, you realize you have to make your way vertically quite a bit and you don't really have that much more distance to cover. So that was where the waterfall ladder was. And then a bunch of just weaving very steep switchbacks up a pretty narrow you know, notch between cliffs was kind of how you finish. And then when you get up to the top of that is where the Grotenhütte is. And that is even in a more dramatic spot than Strips and Jock, where it's just kind of out on a ridge. It looks like their deck is like falling off the mountain and based off like where it's built. So a really cool spot for, for that night. And I think that day overall is probably, if you could only do one day, that would probably be the day I would, I would recommend. <laughs> It's great when they put huts in these places where if you were backpacking, you wouldn't even be able to figure out a place to camp. You know? Right, exactly. And someone built a whole building here. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. <laughs> okay. And so then the next day, how does that look? So the next day is the, is the shortest day that we had and is actually uh, a recommended, it's part of the normal recommended route, but you go from there to Hintersteiner Sea, which is a big lake. And I think the primary reason it's shorter is that they just recommend you spend some time at the lake. So overall, that day is definitely probably the easiest day overall in terms of the big full days, mostly downhill. The route is pretty interesting still. So you leave from the Greutenhäute, which is a really cool spot, and then you kind of wrap around uh, the mountain. And then you maintain your altitude for a pretty good distance. And there are a couple kind of interesting farmhouses there where they're running natural water through a tub and the tub is full of beer and soda and things like that. And then they have a little cash <laughs> box next to it and just honor code. So there are a few places like that on little farms that were cool. Um, definitely had 
like a way too early in the day beer just because you can't miss the opportunity to purchase one from someone who obviously worked very hard to get them up there. Uh, but wasn't, wasn't there obviously to sell it to us. Yeah. They're not light. <laughs> exactly. So that was cool. And then there are a couple sections on that day where you, you're kind of, because you're maintaining your altitude, you're kind of going up and over a couple different ridges and things. So there are, again, nothing crazy, but sections where things are bolted in things like that, but nothing too rough from that perspective. And then when you get down to the Hintersteiner area, that's really more of like a full-fledged vacation community. Not a vacation community by any means, but a vacation destination. So there's, you know, single family homes near the lake. There's inns and things like that. Restaurants, you know, kind of on the water. There's a little beach area with the, you know, selling concession like food and things like that. And the lake itself is really, uh, really quite beautiful. It's a dammed lake, so it's, you know, man-made in a, or I guess man-expanded in a way, but was kind of a turquoisey blue, so definitely still has that alpine vibe. And then where we stayed that day was at the very back of the valley at the Pension Mire, which is another farm. They had a view of basically the entire lake and then looking back at the mountains behind it. And so that was a really cool spot for taking it in and really kind of gave it a a very alpine-like feel, uh, even though you kind of are at the bottom of the valley, so to speak. And then finishing up the last day, how was that? Every last day, I feel like, is always more challenging than you expect it to be, no matter what type of hiking. And we were probably back to Munich by 3 p.m. at the latest. So, you know, leaving at a normal morning time post-breakfast, and then even with waiting in Kufstein for the train and a 90-minute train, you know, we're back at a pretty reasonable hour. But you're now pretty low at the lake and you kind of have to wrap back up to where the chairlift is going to take you down. And so I think the, how much climbing we had similar to any type of hike where you kind of think you're done, you kind of think you're done and then you just keep going up. We kind of had that, but kind of got an early uh, lunch at the Kindlehuta where we stopped for lunch the first day. So kind of a cool way to bring it full circle. Uh, and then got to see that whole Valley in the better weather. And then, over to the west of that, there's more of a prominence that looks out over Kufstein to the south or to the north and then out to the west that we hadn't you know, been to yet. And so that was a cool spot to kind of end the hike, come down, have a lunch, and then, you know, ultimately head back down from there. So that's the last day. And then you take the chairlift back down, walk through town and uh, get back on the train. So a pretty great way to wrap it up. And we were able to meet up with a friend in Munich for dinner and kind of celebrate a, a good hike. So as you look back on it, why is this a trail worth hiking? There's tons of different reasons we picked it. And I think those are great reasons if those are priorities. I also think if you are interested in a more you know anonymous hike in the Alps, I was blown away at how few people we ran into and just how much uh, space and solitude we had. And so if that's something you're interested in, I think that's a great reason. Uh, and then I think the uniqueness of where you get to stay throughout that hike is pretty unique. On the Altavia one, all the huts are very cool and they're very interesting and, you know, family run places and all that. And by no means am I suggesting there isn't diversity and all that, but being able to stay at, you know, on a farm and then at a mountain hut and, you know, on a lake is, you know, super unique and, you know, you could go swimming in the lake if you wanted to. And so there are, every day felt a little bit different, which was, I think, pretty fun and unique. And then going back, and especially if you're planning another trip, the ability to add on things where you're doing a little bit of a via ferrata and kind of heading up and into the mountains a little bit more, uh, but not needing to have that be part of the trek. So you don't, you know, if you want to do that, but don't want to do it with your big backpacking pack, you know, that's also an option. So I think there's lots of cool ways to, you know, make this a really fun and unique trip uh, in addition. Is there a particular moment along the hike that stands out for you? Getting up to Strips and Jock the first evening definitely stands out. You know, we had rougher weather all day and then we had a great sunset and, you know, the pinky, the limestone turning pink was just wild. Uh, so that stands out for sure. The sitting outside on the porch of that uh, older man's, you know, farmhouse and, you know, talking to that couple and then looking up at the paragliders. I think those are kind of the two that most stood out. And then when we got to the Groton Hotel, that's where we met our friends from Cologne and ended up kind of hiking with them for the next two days. 
so that was also kind of a fun experience. Got to share dinner with them and then all realized we were ultimately about the same age and had a fair bit in common. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was fun. Uh, and then I think a rare part of, you know, hiking in the Alps is you get to meet people, you know, you may not meet somebody if they're pitching their tent nearby, but you do if you're sharing a meal with someone, which is a fun experience. Did anything happen that you didn't expect that would cause you to do something differently if you were to do this again or plan it again? Or anything about what you planned to do that didn't quite work out the way you hoped? Or I think everything worked out relatively well, you know, just in terms of expectations. I think I've recommended it twice already, but I would definitely try to do something with the Via Ferrata stuff or kind of going up and into the range a little bit more. And then there's a benefit of never hearing English, which is you just feel like you're having a very local experience. The one counter to that is there were uh, there was one hut where they like, had to find someone who spoke English in order in order to check us in, uh, and so we did try really hard. You know, every evening we were you know learning uh, what we thought we were learning. Uh, we learned something for sure. You know, on Duolingo and things like that. But you can, I think, bring language resources that help you in the moment that you don't really think to bring when you're a modern traveler who has their phone at, you know, with them all the time they think. I think bringing a phrase book and even just showing that extra level of effort is really nice, uh, especially if you don't speak the language. So that's, I think, probably one area where we could have slightly improved. And then there are a couple of language times where someone came back out to ask if we wanted one strudel or two strudel, and we told one person one thing and one person <laughs> another thing. <laughs> so, uh, you know, things like that that I think you know, are going to happen. But going that extra step on that, I think is, is always good. Well, thank you, Alex, for talking with me about this hike. It sounds like an incredible hike and I am definitely sold on the idea. And it sounds like one my wife would be willing to do with me. So, (laughs) um, I like the, I like the idea of it, but while I have you, I've got a few more questions before we go. So what is the one hike you've done besides this one that others shouldn't miss out on? The one hike that I've done that I think others should not miss out on is a local Seattle one. The The High Divide Trail in Olympic National Park was one that had been on the list for a really long time and we got to do in the summer of 2021 and kind of blew away all expectations in terms of you know Alpine Lake Basin. Uh, we saw probably six or seven bears on that trip, uh, went to sleep you know, still seeing where the bears were as we went to bed in our tent, which is definitely a first. (laughs) And they were still where they were, you know, when we woke up the next morning, pretty far away, but still it's, it's weird to close your tent up knowing that there is a bear, you know, where it is. And then I think just a really unique kind of rainforest type experience you get with really cool waterfalls before you even get up and into the mountains. So that one in terms of kind of, I think a highlight of Washington backpacking and hiking uh, is definitely one not to miss if you're if you're headed out that way. What's the next trip on your list? We've had it on our list for a while in eastern Oregon, the Wallawas. I always say them wrong. Uh, the Wallawas are Wallawas. <laughs> but definitely want to head out there next summer. Um, that's been on the list for a bit and had a couple friends that went out there um, this past summer and you know raved about it. And so I think that's kind of on the list for next year. So this is east of the Cascades like east of Bend and all that, out in the desert kind of, but mountainous sort of desert? It is definitely pretty dry, but a lot of it, there, you know, alpine lakes, things like that, it doesn't necessarily look uh, like a desert. Oh, okay. It looks pretty similar, I would say, to the Cascades. Uh, but it's almost like you're so far east of Bend, you've driven through quite a bit of desert, and then you get to another mountain range in the northeastern corner. Okay. Cool. Yeah. I've looked at the map and thought about driving out into those areas and hiking out there, but I've never figured out like what I would do when I got there. So that seems like an interesting place to go though. Yeah. It's out there, but. All right. Last question. What is the dumbest thing you've ever done hiking? This ties into what we were talking about before we got on where you were just in the the Highlands, but I visited Scotland in March once. um, And we, a bunch of dumb college age kids decided that we needed to go hiking because we, despite the weather, uh, and it was a particularly cold winter. So the dumbest thing we've ever done hiking, I think, is walking out onto a hike called the Devil's Staircase uh, in like a blowing snowstorm, wearing, wearing you know, reasonably strong gear, uh, but definitely not, you know, with the appropriate forms of, you know, shelter and things like that. And it wasn't until one of us, you know, finally 
put our foot in some water that we decided that, you know, maybe we should kind of turn it around. And then as we walked back down, we realized we had no idea where the trail was. And Oh, wow. Yeah, it kind of completely blown over. And so we made our way down and then ultimately found the parking lot and things like that. But I would say that's definitely one of those moments where, you know, you're racing to catch up as we talked about at the beginning of the show. But, you know, there are definitely some things you need to, you know, learn along the way in terms of, you know, how to stay safe and how to be mindful of things. So weather is definitely something I've got gotten uh, a lot more respect for as I've learned more about backpacking and even just hiking in general. Alex Schumann, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Jeremy. Really enjoyed it. Thanks again to Alex for coming on the show to talk about the Kaiser Krone. I hope that Alex and I have inspired you to consider hiking the Kaiser Krone. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend about it, or better yet, give us a good review on whichever podcast service you use. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. Let's talk about our next episode. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we have a special episode. In late 2021, I had a significant birthday. Let's just say it was a big round number. I decided then that in 2022, I would do a multi-day outdoor adventure every month of the year. Well, how did that work out? I backpacked the coast, foothills, mountains, and deserts with an international trip thrown into boot. I stayed in a tent, a tent cabin, B&Bs, Airbnbs, guest houses, inns, and hotels. I hiked solo with friends and with family. Was I able to pack 12 trips into the year? Well, we'll see. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, you get a lot more for your time as we see if I was able to do 12 hikes in 12 months. All right. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode or ideas for future episodes, including if you'd like to be a guest and talk about a trail that you've hiked, reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So start planning your next hike. And before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening.